Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Michelle Berry. Dr. Berry is an assistant professor in the history department at the University of Arizona. Uh, She is the co-author previously with Emily Wakefield of the fabulous book that I will say I myself have used in teaching called A Primer for Teaching environmental history and is the author of the new book cow talk work ecology and range cattle ranchers in the american west which came out with the university of oklahoma press earlier this year in 2023 welcome to the new books network michelle good to have you here hi steve thanks very much for having me why don't we start off as we always do on the new books network by just hearing who you are tell us about yourself your background and in particular how you became interested in history and the history of the west So I am a sixth generation Coloradan who grew up on the western slope of Colorado, kind of surrounded by cow culture. Um, And my parents loved, had a deep love of history. My dad actually is from Springfield, Illinois, um, where Abraham Lincoln lived most of his life. And so every time we went back to see my grandparents there, we would go to all the Lincoln, every single year, we would go to the Lincoln stuff. And I just fell in love with history there as a young person. um, And that was nurtured. And then when I went to Colorado College for my undergraduate education, I discovered environmental history um, with the amazing Anne Hyde um, and just had my love of the the academic discipline of history nurtured by folks like Doug Monroy and, and other U.S. historians. So I think the I came by it sort of naturally thinking about environmental history um especially in the U.S. West uh, as a as a young person and in my upbringing. And then my undergraduate education just nurtured that passion. Um, and so that's how I came to, to really decide I wanted to be uh, an environmental historian. I didn't even know environmental history existed. You know, when you're in high school, you don't know you don't know these things. Um, and so it was really great to get exposed to that uh, in the undergraduate uh, space and then be able to you know explore it further in graduate school. And what brought you to the topic of this book in particular? Why a book about ranching in the very recent American Western past specifically? Well, as you know, this so this book comes out of uh, research that I did as a graduate student. And as you know, as a graduate student, you're always trying to find the thing that no one else has written about, right? Uh, And I was super interested in both environmental history and labor history. And I wanted to try to figure out a way to blend the two. So agricultural history was calling to me and having grown up on a farm and a ranch that um 
I, I lived it and thought it was super interesting anyway. Um, and then just thought, well, that's a really cool niche for an environmental historian to do. Um, but of course, so much had been written about the 19th century cattle ranching industry. Um, and I was really focusing on the 20th century in my studies. And I thought, as I looked around, I sort of thought, you know, there's not much past the 1930s. I wonder if this is something that I could do um, uh, for the dissertation. And indeed, was able to find, you know, just pretty rich archival collections of stuff from the ranchers in really in the from the 1940s through to even into the 1970s and 80s. Um, and so that was one reason. The other reason is that I um, I grew up in the Intermountain West in the 80s and 90s when I say this in the epilogue, we had a, a book on our coffee table uh, called The Angry West, written by Richard Lamb, who was the governor of Colorado in the 1980s. And he was trying to sort of talk about why folks, especially rural agricultural um, peoples, were sort of angry in the U.S. West. And I, that's the that was the culture I grew up in. And I wanted to understand what, where the anger came from, especially with the sagebrush rebels of the 70s and 80s. Um, and I thought, well, that that sort of anger had to have started somewhere previously to the 70s and 80s as you know thinking historically and so i really started to think well, i wonder if i can find the roots to that um and i don't know necessarily that i did find all the roots to what the sagebrush rebels eventually become and and certainly what they what what is happening now in sort of militant um ranch culture but i found um such a compelling story regarding uh, ranchers and their lives and their experiences in the decades that I ended up looking at, that that I do think that I found at least kernels of why ranchers connect so much to one another and were able to sustain such power as a special interest group in the 20, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century in the Mountain West. And you you mentioned um, the the sources that you used, and one thing I'll point out about this book is that you have some really fabulous images in there. It kind of made it even more of a joy to read. It's just you know the sources are you know obviously it's it's well sourced, but the images in particular really stood out to me. Yeah, it's they these archives are so cool, and it's fascinating to me that even still to this day, I think I'm pretty much the only person that's that's really looked at them. And there's so much in there to do and to look at that I hope someone else goes back and revisits some stuff. But the the in the 50s and 60s these ranching communities in, in the states that i look at which it's montana wyoming colorado new mexico and arizona um and the amount of of the production of written material and visual material that these ranchers did in these decades is just kind of mind-blowing everything from the cattle growers association magazines which was a huge source for me but even just their letters to one another um their own diaries you know we, i used ranch records or the business records of some of the larger ranchers ranches um but there was so much more than that and it really it kind of surprised me um and again so many so much photography that they that they ended up publishing of of ranchers getting together in conventions and on their ranches to do different kinds of uh, educational stuff around range management. And it, it was just, they were prolific, um, which made the research daunting because <laughs> there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there, uh, but also just super rich and, and really fun. Um, I have one more kind of meta question before we get into the, the kind of meat of the book itself. Um, this is really 
pleasant book to read, I guess, is, is the only way that I could really put it. it. It has a really strong sense of voice. And while I wouldn't say that you're quite a character in the book, your voice and your writing style really, uh, it, it's not like a lot of the academic books that one might expect. Um, and I, I found that very refreshing. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious choice on your part, if that was your editor was maybe pushing you to write in that way or, or sort of what, what the decision-making process was to writing in this very accessible, very readable style. Not that academic books don't are not readable. I'm not trying to say that either. But you know, there's a, there's a we, we were talking a little before the show. There's a formality that often comes with academic writing, and yours kind of it, it walks that line very well. I thought. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate that compliment more than you know because it was a conscious choice um, and one that I kind of struggled with because to be taken seriously as an you know as a scholar um, and especially as a historian, one needs to have that almost authoritative voice and, um, as you're saying, formality, and sometimes even just vocabulary choices where we're using really big and sometimes inaccessible uh, language. I wanted to steer away from that, frankly. Um, I'm not good at it. I don't speak that way, just, day, day, you know, my daily life. Um, and I taught high school after I got out of graduate school, and I found that um, when you do speak that way, especially to young people, they sort of zone out and, and it's hard for them to access the information and get excited about it. And I thought that that isn't exactly the book that I want to write. I want to write a book that a rancher might want to pick up and read um, because it's not dry and, and deadly boring. Right. Um, and then also that um, to be true to myself, to be true to my uh, my authorial voice and, and just how I think about the stuff that I researched and the, and the things that I was, the stories that I was telling. I wanted to tell those stories in a way that uh, felt true to me and also was accessible to those people whose stories I was telling. Especially a book like this, which is, you know, kind of at its heart, fundamentally about people communicating with each other in a way that, you know, sort of, if not always speaking like the like an in language, using terms and ideas that they all understand through shared experience, right? So your book is trying to, I, I see a bridge there, I see a connection there. Yep, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And it, it's kind of funny. You do wonder if you started writing, you know, sort of in the in, in, in using the same kind of tonality that the ranchers themselves use, especially when I would tell, you know, in the book, the little anecdotal stories. I almost felt I almost felt like I was George Ellis, if, if you will, who ran the Bell Ranch in southeastern New Mexico, as he's talking about, you know, trying to control rabbits and, and the number of quail on the ranch. And at a certain point, you're telling those stories, you kind of have to you almost have to take on their persona in an interesting way because their authorial voice is so strong. Well, let's get into the book itself and the stories that that you're telling here. And why don't we begin by just discussing some of the some of the parameters and some of the the kind of important ideas in in the book itself. So first, let's talk about people. Who are we talking about here? Can you tell us a bit about ranchers and their history in the Mountain West? And uh, that could be a book in and of itself. So you know, right. <laughs> a brief history of ranching in the Mountain West, please. Yeah, let's do this real quick on. This, uh, this podcast. Um, well, so the ranchers I'm looking at were mostly um, mostly small-ish family-based ranches. Um, and I looked at uh, range cattle ranchers in particular, meaning they grazed their cows on the range. And sometimes that was their own private property, their deeded acreage, but sometimes it was on public lands through grazing rights. Um, that's who I was really interested in looking at in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it was easy to do that because that was who comprised most of the ranching industry in those years. 
you know, in the, when we think about cattle ranching, I think in the Mountain West and even, you know, sort of in the Great Plains, we think about that that glorious era, quote unquote, depends on your perspective, but the glorious era of the big cattle barons um, of the 1860s, 70s and 80s. Um, and that that history had been has been fairly well documented that when if we're going to get a history of ranching, it's going to be the, that era um, where these very wealthy white men, um, as really as settler colonists arrive in the West and take over public domain and graze their cattle and make millions. And then comes the 1880s and, uh, you know, huge blizzards, huge droughts and, and the open range kind of dries up and dries out. Um, and so then there's this interesting, you know, 30 or 40 year uh, time period when the, the industry itself refashioned itself into more of a family-based kind of industry. Um, and then the 1930s, 20s and 30s hit with the, with the horrible drought all over the Mountain West. And that um, that story has been written really in interesting ways by people like Karen Merrill, uh, and in particular focusing on kind of what government was doing with and to ranchers in that period of time with the Grazing Act. Um, but there's nothing after that. Uh, there's really very little until we get into the 21st century and then we start getting really cool public media, you know, journalistic stories about ranching in the in the current in the current day. But in between there, a little bit about the sagebrush rebels in places like Nevada, but not a lot of information about that immediate post-war era that I look at, weirdly enough. And so that was the niche that I was trying to, to fill is to look at those range cattle ranchers, those family-based agriculturalists in that immediate post-war post-war era to try to connect the dots between the sagebrush rebels of the 70s and 80s and and the old old industry of the 1870s and 1880s and what is cow talk the title of the book what what is that what does that phrase mean and why is it so critical to um identity building and identity formation and community building among this particular group of people so how talk so when i was interested in in graduate school i was really interested in, in environmental and labor history and, and trying to blend those two i even thought about maybe doing something in you know sort of mining history and thinking about unionization and that sort of thing um but i got i when i started really thinking about agriculture and thinking about um uh the fact that so much of agricultural knowledge is place-based and it's very industry specific um i got to i i sort of started looking for language for uh, the ways in which ranchers spoke to one another uh, in a language that perhaps only they would understand. And as I looked, I was, I was like, they're talking about cows all the time. And then I thought, you know, when we talk about industry specific language, we sometimes call it shop talk. So of course, one thing led to another and cow talk is what emerged as the title. And cow talk is, is, is just that it's talk about cows um, and everything that relates to cows. And so uh, talking about the actual cow itself, about the range, about uh, bugs and diseases, um, about the weather, about drought and rain arriving or not arriving. Um, and so just all of the conversations that ranchers had with each other about their identity as range cattle ranchers centered on the cow. Um, and then it was it was crucial to identity formation because um, it it gave them something in common. And one of the things that I don't that I was that I that I'm very um, what's the word I'm looking for attuned to is conflict among the ranchers. What I don't want the book to be perceived is as this sort of thing this 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 uh, explanation that all ranchers are the same and they all agreed on everything. In fact, that just couldn't be further from the truth. They had. They lived in different regions and different 
you know, biological places. They had, they grew different breeds of cattle. They had came from different religious backgrounds. Sometimes they were different. They came from different ethnic backgrounds, especially uh, in the Southwest. Um, they came from different political backgrounds. Some were very moderate. Some were kind of almost liberal. Many were more to the right on the political spectrum, but they didn't all agree. So trying to coalesce as a special group that had profound power, political and economic power, and a cultural staying power in, in the region took some work and, and it took something to gel them together. And I think it was their quest to raise cattle and to communicate with one another about that work that really allowed them to um, glue together in, a, in sort of a more cohesive way than, than they might have otherwise, because they are a differentiated group of people. So your book covers several decades in the middle of, of the 20th century. Um, and this is a period of great change. I mean, every period is a period of great change, right? But the 1930s to the 1960s, which is where a lot of the meat of this book kind of takes place, is a period of great upheaval in American history. Um, so the social context of the ranchers that you're talking about, of their lives, is changing considerably in the American West. The economics of the West, the culture of the West, the, the environment of the West, all these things are changing in this era. Can you talk a bit about these changes and how ranchers are responding to these changes? Yep, yeah, sure. This is um, this was sort of the, the first chapter of the book, and I... I wasn't, I actually wasn't going to talk about sort of this macro contextual stuff when I first started to write the book. I really wanted to settle it just on ranchers day to day lives. And then I began to realize that their day to day lives were bumping up against all of these macro historical changes that were happening in the region. And so um, I kind of had to narrow down what those were or what seemed to be most present in ranchers experiences in these years. Um, certainly the, the military industrial complex that arrives in the West because of World War II w was, was a presence um, in ranchers' lives. Road building, bring, the bringing of tourists and sportsmen into um, sort of the new West um, uh, in spaces, um, right? Folks who wanted to take up camping in the 1950s, uh, increasing numbers coming from more urban areas, the urbanization of um the U.S., you know, sort of the the U.S. West, Phoenix, Denver, uh, these 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 larger metropolitan areas, maybe even Albuquerque to a certain extent, these larger metropolitan areas meant that there were increasing suburbs, there were increasing folks who wanted to get outside and go do things in rural spaces, and they bumped up against ranchers in really fascinating ways. Um, and so, and then of course, and then of course, the presence of the, of the federal government in new ways that they hadn't necessarily had to deal with in, in the same way uh, before the 1940s. And so all of these macro historical changes in the region found, made ranchers sort of begin to feel defensive. Um, and I think that that defense of their way of life was another component of cow talk, that it's an us versus them kind of mentality and that we have a very specific way of life that we're uh, that's under attack in a, in a variety of ways from a variety of forces. And that defensiveness, I think, eventually emerges as anger, you know, in the later years of the 70s and 80s. But in the 50s and 60s, it, it just serves as another um, opportunity for cow talk, for them to come together to try to problem solve. What do we do about you know the sportsmen who are coming onto our onto our ranches and cutting fences and and hunting sort of illegally even though they have a license they're not really supposed to be on the ranch hunting um, these these kinds of issues um, that we think of as new west issues that emerge after the after World War II really affected ranchers in ways that almost surprised surprised me I wasn't expecting to see 
um, so much engagement with those kinds of outside macro historical forces as there was in the archives. And so um, that played that played a big part, I think, in, in bringing cattle ranchers together to try to figure out how to live in the new West. Yeah. Uh, shared, shared experience, right? People that are all kind of facing very similar issues. Yeah. Um, you said earlier that part of the genesis of this book came out of your interest in the, the intersection of environmental history and labor history. And there's uh, a lot in this book about what it was actually like working on a ranch in this period. That's also something that's changing quite a bit over the course of, of these, these, these middle decades in the 20th century. So what does work look like on ranches? Who is doing the work? Who's doing the labor? And what is changing? How is technology in particular changing the kind of rhythms of life and of work in these places throughout these decades? Yeah, that's that's um, that was really what I wanted the the, the study to do was to show um, as accurately as possible based in the archival sources what what day to day life was like for ranchers and not just you know sort of the cowboy but also ranch women and how ranch women understood themselves as a comparative gender historian. I was really interested in women's work um, heading into this and wasn't sure I was going to find a lot, to be honest. Growing up in a rural western part of Colorado, I knew ranch women who were incredibly tough and in, in, incredibly important laborers in, in on the farm or on the ranch um, and prided themselves on it. But I wondered if that had always been the case. And in fact, I was blown away in the archives with all with the presence of uh, women's labor everywhere, both domestic labor, but also ranch labor. So, so women are doing a lot of the work and doing all kinds of different work. Of course, ranch men and, and the owner operators, um, uh, did all, did all the outdoor kinds of stuff, right? The branding, the, the, all the kinds of vaccination and, and veterinary stuff that needed to happen that they could do themselves as they would. They were constantly trying to ride the range and understand, um, what was happening on the range, especially in terms of invasive uh, plant species um, or inedible plant species. They sometimes they didn't care one way or the other really about native plants, but they definitely did not want inedible um, uh, invasive species in their in their range spaces. So they spent a lot of labor trying to, you know, find cockleburs and get rid of them, especially if they were in the water draws where the cattle had to go get get water from. Um, those kinds of stories were rampant in the archives. Um, and then there were some hired hands. Um, I didn't find as much um, sort of good old, you know, quantitative um, sources about the numbers of, of hired hands that were that were around the region during the time. Uh, some places like the Bell Ranch in New Mexico had really great ranch records and they could get in there and sort of see how much they made, these hired hands. They were usually itinerant laborers. They usually came on and did kind of very specific kinds of labor. They might be a mechanic. They might be, um, you know, a really good cow hand who could do all kinds of things with the cattle themselves. Um, sometimes they were cooks, right? They would come and go depending on the season with Roundup and that kind of stuff to, to help, you know, make, make food and make meals for, for the, for the hired hands and the cowboys of the ranch that were out on the range, rounding up cattle for brandings or whatever. So there were a lot of different kind of, um, uh, niche kinds of, of, of labor that these, that these hired hands did. And they were very often seasonal or itinerant laborers. Uh, so a little bit harder to find in, right in, in the documents and in the archives, but they were definitely there. And there was a lot of really interesting conversation about how the skill of those laborers, especially around cow work, um, was was in the minds of some of the older ranchers. You know, it was hard to find good help in the 
40s and 50s and by the 1960s. Um, and of course, the, I found some interesting conversations from the laborers themselves saying, no, we're we're still as good as ever. <laughs> the, the, the kinds of work needed is changing. And so that brings us to technology. Um, and this is a period of time when there's very intense mechanization, or at least there's very intense decisions about mechanization that are happening. Ranchers are having to decide, do we mechanize um, uh, the, you know, branding table? Do we, do we buy more trucks or do we continue to, to do stuff on horseback? Um, and, and all, there's all kinds of new technologies in terms of range management that they have to decide whether or not they want to adopt. Can they afford to adopt it? Can they afford to put in another windmill to get some kind of water source uh, on the ranch? And, and, and do they make that electric? Do they electrify their, their pumping of groundwater, for example? So there's all kinds of new technologies that are coming to the range and to the ranch that ranchers are having to decide whether or not to adopt. And part of that meant having to decide whether or not they had the expertise and the knowledge to operate the technology and also to find, you know, help when the technology failed. Uh, were there Was there expertise uh, locally that could come out and fix any kind of new electric or fandangled kind of technology that they had chosen to adopt? Um, and so technology is changing the work culture. The work culture is varied it varied seasonally. It varied kind of based on gender. I mean, you didn't very often see ranch anything in the archives about male ranchers doing the laundry, uh, for example. Um, there was the business part of running a ranch where there was a lot of paperwork and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of paying attention to um, uh, the finances for the ranch itself. Oftentimes women took on that labor. So there, it, the, the labor life on these cattle ranches is so, was so varied and so rich um, and at the same time that they were doing old fashioned work, work that had been done the same way for many, many years, growing cows was really starting to, to have the possibility of changing that caused, uh, some excitement and felt, I think some ranchers felt like there were great opportunities, but it also caused a lot of anxiety and anxiousness, um, among the ranchers, giving yet another reason for them to gather in community and, and talk through and think through, um, you know, what they, what their plan was and, and what their approach would be to, to labor in the mid 20th century. And however mechanized or however uh, automated or technological ranching ever became, it's still a, a line of work and a way of life where you have to understand the environment and the ecology and these living things really, really intimately. So how did they understand the environment where they're doing this work? How was knowledge of, of the, the land um, or the land itself even? How are these important tools in community and identity building? I know that part of that knowledge extends as far into like microbes and insects as well, that there's, there's a lot that these people have to know about the non-human world in order to effectively do this job. Yeah, I think that was my favorite part of the discovery of, re, uh, of the, you know, the discovery process of research. Um, I think ranchers get a real bad rep uh, in, in more current times as overgrazing, as only caring about making money, um, as being almost disconnected from, you know, ecological or biodiversity. Um, and I think that I think that's unfair. I think that reputation is 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 too limited, and I certainly saw in in the archives and in the stories that these ranchers were telling in the in the forties, fifties, and sixties a deep reverence for um, the more than human. One because, like you just said, the power of the more than human in 
in their lives. They were completely dependent on on rain, for example. They were completely dependent on um, grass to grow. Um, and so they had a respect um, for the land that I think sometimes gets overlooked when we're talking about ranchers and ranch culture and their approaches to their industry. Having said that, their goal was to grow cows and they were going to do that in the way that was, you know, most efficient, least expensive and, and kind of fastest. Right. And so um, there was plenty of I don't care what this grass species is going to do. I'm going to plant it anyway because it's going to grow fast, even in drought times and, and feed my cattle. Um, and we see some of the ramifications of that, those kinds of decisions across the Mountain West these days. We can think of buffalo grass as an example of that. And so I don't want to make them out to be tree hugging environmentalists, certainly, um, who just wanted to leave, you know, sort of a preservationist mindset where they just wanted to leave uh, every every part of the range in this perfectly pristine um, native kind of state. But they did have a, a very deep understanding of the non-human world. They had a very deep respect for it. They spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to manage it, but then also recognize that they didn't have any power in that management a lot of the time. Um, and that was kind of interesting. It was a bit of a, a, a tone in the archives of being kind of continually humbled by what was happening on the range. Um, the one area where they, it seemed to me that they really leaned a lot on technology and on, on expertise, right? Outside expertise, which they were always a little nervous about, was in veterinary medicine. And specifically, you mentioned microbes and, and diseases and just bugs. So, every, you know, tons and tons and tons of conversation, cow talk around everything from cattle grubs, which are not, not terrible, but not great, to foot and mouth disease, to brucellosis, which which could ruin an entire herd pretty fast. Um, and so in those cases, they had to they had to rely on some outside expertise. They had to rely on their local veterinarians, on vaccinations, on treatments. Um, and they, they turned to the USDA, they turned to local vets, they turned to all kinds of different outside sources to try to figure out how best to deal um, with their cattle's bodies and the ailments that cows just came down with all the time. Pink eye, screw worm. I mean, it's just, it's kind of funny. I, it, that part of the book is, is pretty short. I could have gone on and on and on about all the ailments that were, that ranchers were talking about in, in the, in the archives. But again, that very visceral, um, you know, very, um, intense connection that they had with the animals and with their bodily health was was really fascinating. Um, and I think, again, we get the sense sometimes that ranchers are, which added, I think, to their defensiveness a bit, right, that they're very hard on the cows. And of course, their goal is to to grow the cattle for to become beef. Um, but in the meantime, they're pretty they're pretty connected to their cows, which is um, something that maybe we wouldn't ex expect necessarily. Um, those chapters reminded me a great deal of um, that kind of famous, or at least in our little world, famous Richard White article, Are You an Environmentalist or Do You Work for a Living? Which, you know, is all about the same question of how do we understand environmentalism through labor, through work, right? And people that, you know, a sort of stereotypical environmentalist would say are, quote unquote, ruining the environment. Well, actually, they know it quite well and in ways that, you know, a, a city slicker like me probably never could, right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's right. And they think and that and Richard White, that whole. Yeah, absolutely. The the environment, the labor turn in environmental history was incredibly important in my training because I was yeah. getting trained right, right about then. Um, and then, you know, people like uh, Nancy Langston and others um, who, who want us to think about um, 
ecology, not being able to escape, even us, even the city slickers, we can't escape our ecologies, right? And cattle ranchers not only couldn't escape the ecology, they didn't want to escape it. Uh, they wanted to understand it and they were smack in the middle of it and they recognized that they were smack in the middle of it. Um, and that, and they took great pride in that. That was part, very much a part of their um, way of life as they often refer to it as that they uh, emphasized and that they nurtured, uh, they nurtured their, like we think about continuing education in our professions, right? Um, ranchers were doing continuing education all the time. Um, not just, not just out on the range and sort of learning as they went, but also really seeking expert opinions and expert understandings, sharing what worked and what didn't work with one another. And they came together in, in extraordinary ways at conventions and at just meetings down at the neighbor ranch and even through these publications you see this print culture of of sharing of that ecological knowledge that was essential to to their industry and that they prided themselves on knowing one of my favorite chapters and one of the most kind of nuanced and and kind of subtle and complicated chapters to, to me anyway was the one about the kind of the market mentality of ranching culture and how on the one hand you you have this very finicky sometimes even to ranchers downright like hurtful, harmful capitalist marketplace, which is often straight up undercutting their hopes for their futures. But at the same time, market competition also, as you say, is increasing cow talk, right? It is helping them to build the sense of identity too. So what was the relationship or what is the relationship between ranching identity and the marketplace and 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 sort of, you know, industrialized capitalism? Yeah. Great question. So one thing, one thing that's interesting is this is kind of the golden era of industrializing agriculture, right? The use of pesticides and herbicides to increase production. And some ranchers embraced that wholeheartedly and others were very nervous about it. They, they um, thought that it might create a kind of dependence that they were nervous about because the minute you adopt that sort of technology, you kind of have to keep at it. And if times were hard, if beef prices went down and production prices went up, maybe they couldn't continue um, to use the technology in the way that they had before. And so that adoption of indu industrial approaches to ranching was very nerve wracking for a lot of ranchers. And they took those those decisions really seriously. And throughout, throughout the archives, it was so obvious that they knew that capitalism was finicky and that the market was fickle and that it was going to shift and that there were going to be these drastic downturns that no one could predict. And so much of it was connected to um, the ecology, right? So if drought came and there was no feed on the range and they had to buy feed from somewhere else, they were, uh, uh, you know, at the whim of, of the prices of that feed. And if they couldn't afford to feed their cattle, their cattle were going to die or at least not gain the kind of weight that they needed them to gain. And, and that was could ruin their business. Um, and very many years of that could ruin the ranch. And so, um, so they knew that they, they knew themselves to be part of this, this economic system that they couldn't control. And that was kind of cruel. Um, they knew they were part of an environmental system that also sort of same finicky and could be con construed as cruel, um, in the ways in which rain came and didn't come. Um, and they, and they, and they, they agreed on that. What they didn't agree on is what the heck to do about it. And some ranchers really wanted federal government support. They wanted the federal government to do price supports. They they favored um, the federal government helping them to pay for vaccines for brucellosis uh, in, in the late 1950s, for example, in, in the northern states of Montana and Wyoming. But a whole bunch more were saying, no, don't do this. If we rely on the federal government this year for vaccination support or for whatever, in the future, they're going to 
going to want something from us. Or then when, you know, the natural market gets restored, then, then it'll, it'll be very, very difficult on us. And so they, there was intense disagreement around uh, how to handle the finicky marketplace. Um, almost no, of course, it's the 1950s and 60s, right? There is no one, um, there's everyone is fearful of a government that is going to be, you know, similar to Joe Stalin and, and communist Russia. And there's a lot of anti-communism in the in the sources. I didn't, I actually ended up cutting a lot of that stuff out of that chapter because it was just, it was just so, um, uh, detailed and and it was just it, it almost felt sort of superfluous to what I was trying to do but the the cold the anti-cold the sort of the cold war mentality the anti-communist mentality is everywhere in the sources um because they're trying to figure out whether or not they need or they're going to or they're going to rely on government support uh to to just buffer um them from this market Having said that, they all love capitalism and they want to keep it as a system. And so this is where it gets really interesting, because while mostly in the sources, it's it's sort of men talking about the macroeconomics of it all. The women is in the in the uh, in the female auxiliaries for the cattle growers associations called cowbells. Um, my mother was actually a cowbell, which is very funny. Um, they did tremendous work to do something about the the conundrum of supply and demand and and prices and their their solution was if more people want to buy beef then we'll be able to have more we'll be able to sell more beef it was that pretty much sort of that simple and they did all kinds of things to try to increase the demand for beef so they did they created recipe books for example so one of the one of the favorite recipes was beef fudge and yes it's exactly what it sounds like it is fudge with hamburger <laughs> in it um, and I've tried it and it's just awful. How so do you know I was going to ask that? That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not good. It's just not good at all. Um, when, when I was at the Montana Historical Society doing research, we had a picnic um, and I took beef fudge to the picnic and uh, everybody remi- remembers me from that. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a good memory. <laughs> um, so, but these cowbells did, I mean, so in their local communities, they they would participate in, you know, parades and have floats that promoted the the image of the industry as putting beef on the table, right? And beef in the 50s and 60s didn't necessarily have the negative connotations it does now. It was it was a status symbol, especially for emerging middle class in the 50s and 60s and the suburban mom fixing beef for Father's Day um, was a sign of love, right? And so beef had this, had this um, status for folks that uh, the cowbells really played on beautifully. Um, and they did a lot of labor in trying to to publicize the cattle industry. One is an industry that helped local communities thrive, um, both economically, but also biologically, physically, that, that people were healthier when they ate beef. Um, and then they also just did a really interesting job of, of publicizing beef, of trying to create demand and, and reasons for people to eat beef. Um, and so, you know, it's it, it's fascinating. What I hope comes very obvious in reading the book is is how much how crucial ranch women were in creating these cultural opportunities for affinity among cattle ranchers. Um, and I think um, the power the power of this special interest group um, politically and culturally was maybe be, sort of the foundation was maybe defensiveness, but I don't think that was sustainable. And I think they needed other things um, to sort of prop them up. Um, and I think that the ranch women provided 
a number of those opportunities to transcend the anger and bring the community together in around things that they could agree with or about, right? Certainly the demand for beef was one of them. And, you know, as someone that grew up in the era of ubiquitous um, beef, it's what's for dinner commercials, you know, like it was, it was great reading this book and kind of historicizing these slogans like that and finding out what, what the roots are and, and how far it goes back. Um, so I related to that through, you know, TV watching, watching growing up <laughs> as a kid. Right, exactly. Um, collective memory and stories and a shared sense of past. This is one of the most powerful tools that that people use, you know, across time and across culture cultures to to bind themselves together to create a, a community. And ranchers had a rich past to draw upon. And when I say past, I mean all the different ways that people understand the past. You know, what what people might think of as history, but also myth and memory and all of these these ways of thinking about what has come before. They all play really important roles in bringing ranchers together. So what kinds of memory, what kinds of stories, what versions of history are they drawing upon? And who is being included and who's being excluded in, in these stories, in these kind of identity building uh, uh, tasks, tools? Yeah, that's it's a great question. This uh, this chapter I insisted on. The editor wanted to get rid of this chapter, um, but I really felt very strongly that their um, their their shared memory right was so essential to creating a sense of the kind of community that they wanted to be, even if even if it left out almost all of the past. There's very little discussion about the settler colonialism of the 19th century where indigenous peoples are thoroughly displaced off the range. There's almost no discussion of sort of the foundation or the beginnings of cattle range, cattle ranching in the region being on the backs of the American public and the, and, and free access to the, the public domain as it was claimed by the American government. Um, there's very little discussion about kind of ethnic differences um, or even class differences that some large ranchers likely were maybe not as nice of neighbors as um as they're as, as they're depicted in in the um, in the archives and in the memories, and what's fascinating is how much the ranchers worked at their memories in these decades. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure if that happens as much anymore. But boy, in these years, the associations were uh, uh, contracting with authors to write their institutional histories of the Wyoming Cattle Growers Association, for example. Um, the cowbells themselves did all kinds of almost genealogy kind of productions, uh, put together brand books and brand books, of course, be, you know, have long histories because they stay with the ranch um, and, and they stay with usually with the ranch family um, through, across. They can stay with the ranch family across generations. And so they use these different kinds of cultural productions to assert a memory that was incredibly exclusive. Right. And it was an incredibly I think effective way to make the industry seem even more united, to make the community seem even more homogenous, um, and therefore, you know, assume uh, we can assume connected and and um, uh, in agreement. And I think that they use these memory productions specifically as a tool to do that, to erase some of the more sordid parts of their past, um, and to create a memory where. Things were bucolic and the ranch, you know, the, the thing that stood the test of time was that the grass always grew and there was always a rancher on the range, you know, raising a beautiful cow. And that was sort of the feel of so many of these memory productions. And then always a celebration of masculinized labor, always a celebration of uh, the cowboy, the, icon the, the iconography around the cowboy, 
a man on a horse was often on the covers of these kinds of memory productions. Um, and then they got to when they got together at their conventions, they also drew on memory. And sometimes they would even do plays, you know, that were taken from like the 1880s. And they they, they were just weird, <laughs> for lack of a better word. They, it was just um, it, it, it was it was such a fascinating part of the archives for me because it was probably the most simplistic part of the archives where it was very weird that they just wanted to erase so much of what had transpired previously and give a very whitewashed, uh, very overly simplified look at what ranching had been over time. And that even includes sort of whitewashing, even environmental difficulties. If there had been something like a really bad drought or something, the memory wasn't so much about how dependent they were and how awful it was. It was more about how they how they overcame it through their hard work and their community connection and uh, their neighborliness. Um, and, and that was really fascinating to me, the ways in which any hardship was uh, remembered as having been um, overcome through community uh, and through this community that was uh, sort of overly simplified in all of these memory productions. And what are the end results of all of this cow talk, all of this identity building, all this this sort of this community construction um, is organizing, right? Is the creation of organizations, formalized sort of shared identities through ranching associations of all kinds. So can you tell us a bit about how these organizations formed and maybe even more so the kinds of power that they wielded? Because it's it's sort of cow talk almost made concrete, right? Made Made solid in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's that's what's so interesting about about the book. If I were to critique my book, um, it would be to say, well, it seems as though a lot of, of, of the appearance of unity of this community is the work of the association. So how much do you know what the normal everyday rancher in 1950 really felt about his fellow rancher? And I we can't know that. We I mean, we can sort of get it. There were so many letters among ranchers. Um, talking to one another, sharing information, and so I, I have a sense that 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 um, ranchers felt connected. But you can't you can't go back and ask them, right? Um, and so the associations played that role. They played the role of, like you just said, making cow talk manifest and making cow talk very tangible and concrete, something you could read, something you could look at. Every month, you would get your association. Um, uh, magazine or catalog and catalog play on words for the Arizona Cattle Growers Association. The publication was cattle log, like, you know, cows. Um, and so you would get this publication and you would see your neighbors uh, in, in the pages of, of the, of the magazine. You would see, they would send in pictures of their kids on the, with the calves. And so they were very, um, they were sort of mouthpieces of the community in really interesting ways. And yet they were very professionalized. They had professional executive secretaries who uh, kept up with the memberships and, and membership dues. They they created the Cattle Growers Association conventions, um, and then they and then they published formally published these uh, association periodicals. And so, um, it's interesting because I think partly, so they start so the association started way back in the cattle baron era, mostly as um, organizations to try to force um, or or enforce uh, the property of of the large cattle growers um, to kind of deal with rustlers and cattle theft and that kind of thing. Um, and they were, they sometimes were vigilantes, sort of extra legal 
organizations that have real sordid history. But by the 40s and 50s, they're they're very different. They are, in some ways, um, a social club um, that that is working very hard to make sure that cattle ranchers have at least an appearance of uh, collective power. And so I think that those um, associations, coupled with the actual cow talk that is actually happening on actual ranches with actual uh, uh, ranchers and, and outside experts, uh, I think those two things together is what really ultimately led to an appearance of cultural unity for, for cattle ranchers, which gives them political power, right? Special interest groups have power because they give an appearance of speaking for the group um, and, and that can and that can convince elected representatives and uh, both at the local level, the state level, and the federal level, uh, convince them that that these folks have a lot of a lot of power uh, in the in the in the region or the state, and that they should be listened to. And so I think that ultimately, um, it's kind of this cool combination between the professionalization of the associations that happens in these years, and also the the real day-to-day -day material cow talk that transpired between ranchers that ultimately gives them uh, a cultural staying power that we are still seeing to this day. And as we begin to to wrap up here, I'm wondering if you can briefly carry the story up to today. So what has changed in ranching culture and identity since the mid-20th century? And what hasn't changed? What looks similar? What is the same? How do ranchers in the Mountain West, how do they see themselves here in the early 21st century? And how do they see their future? So, you know, as a historian, this was one of the questions I was going to say, don't ask me that. <laughs> I get that a lot on this podcast, but I have yeah, to ask you. you. <laughs> um, so I, you know... So Almost everything has changed, frankly, um, especially in probably the last 20 years. So in the 21st century, I think the cattle ranching industry of the 21st century is is changing at a rapid pace um, that I think is somewhat tragic. And I think that uh, most most range cattle ranchers see it as such. Um, I think it's something like two million acres um, of farm and, and ranch lands um, have disappeared in like the last year since like 2022 or something. And a lot of that was just in the state of Wyoming as an example. And so I think uh, shifting land ownership is a huge issue for ranchers in a way that it wasn't really in the forties and fifties. Um, I think that increasing these sort of millionaire owners, uh, absentee owners of land, a huge swaths of land in, especially in places like Montana and Wyoming and, and increasingly in Colorado, I think, I think increasingly ranchers are being turned to um, in some progressive conservation circles as allies um, instead of as the enemy and understanding that ranches are can be open spaces and they can be laboratories for biodiversity um, for ranchers who are willing to, to do that. The USDA is even, I think, starting to do some incentivization for that kind of um, activity on ranches as long as, you know, sort of ranchers stay in the business. Um, but taxes are going up, land values are going up. And I think all these pressures are, um, you know, are, are, are making it harder and harder for ranchers to pass on the legacy from generation to generation. Um, I saw a very cool story not long ago about a, a, a woman rancher in Wyoming and, you know, she's doing all kinds of things. Like she's working on, she's a school teacher at the elementary school. She, I think she started an Airbnb on the ranch and she's doing all these things to just to try to hang on to the ranch. Because I think as she says, and I'm just paraphrasing, but something like, you know, it's not just about raising a cow anymore. And so I think that that is um, in, in a nutshell, what's happening with ranching today. It's not just about cow talk anymore. It's about a lot of other kind of talk. Um, but I think increasingly 
um, people in the Mountain West certainly uh, are starting to understand that when we lose these these working landscapes, um, we're losing a lot. Um, we're not just losing uh, a sorted, difficult, racialized past. We're also losing open spaces, and we're also losing, uh, you know, sort of a, a group of people who really does have some understanding of those spaces, more intimate probably than anyone else could possibly have. And so I think that there's more that's not the same now than the, as, as there is that's similar, but I still think that in general, ranchers are a proud people. Um, I think they're still hardworking people. I think they still take, um, uh, have a deep connection and love for their culture. For, and, and I think, you know, politically it's kind of weird, right? Ammon Bundy and the whole Oregon drama that happened a few years ago. If you read his Wikipedia site, um, it calls him a militant, an anti-government militant, not a rancher. So I think people are, are sort of grappling with that also. But at the end of the day, I think ranchers still want to ranch. Um, and, and, and that part hasn't really changed. I always like to ask my guests toward, toward the end of, of our conversation, um, sort of, a as a, as a summary question to think about their book from the perspective of a reader, someone who comes to this book, not knowing anything at all about 20th century ranching and they read the book and then couple months go by, maybe a year or two years goes by. What do you hope that reader remembers or thinks about from that book further on down the line? Yeah, that's a great, that's sort of a meta question, Steve. Um, I think from, <laughs> <laughs> just the sort of the history nerd in me, I, I think I really want people to recognize that agricultural history is really cool <laughs> and that it's really fun um, and that it's so multifaceted. Um, I think that Agriculture is invisible in our, mostly in our dominant culture in 2023. And it's probably one of the only industries that truly matters. We must have food on our table and most of us are not growing that food. And we increasingly have more mouths to feed on this planet um, in the middle of a climate crisis. And farmers on the ground, local farmers who know, uh, know their environment, know the ecology, know how things grow, whether they be plants or animals, are really essential. They're essential laborers in our in our culture. Um, and they're interesting laborers. And it's an interesting uh, history. It's an interesting present. And I just would love for people to, to, as they walk away from the book, not be able to stop thinking about agriculture. Um, I think that's that's a that's a great summary. And you know, we're we're conducting this interview over Zoom, and my kitchen is in the background, and I keep over my shoulder seeing my bowl of onions. And while you were saying that, I was thinking like, oh, I haven't I haven't thought about you know the the history behind any one piece of food in my fridge all that much at all. And uh, I'm doing myself a disservice by not taking agricultural history maybe as seriously as I should. So that will definitely be one of my takeaways for sure. Terrific! Yay! <laughs> um, <laughs> And then my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they've been working on on the in the interim. I, I know that the, this book was was, you know, a fair amount of time coming and it's out and maybe you're taking a break. But if I know historians, you probably have some other stuff in the hopper as well. So what are you working on now, Michelle? Yeah, so my so as much as I just said, gay agriculture, I'm shifting a little tiny bit. Not I mean, not it's not completely 
different, but I'm really interested in the more than human and the role that the more than, so I, I, what I didn't love about my book was that it didn't center the cows enough, that, that the actual environment itself or the more than human wasn't centered as much as I would have loved. So right now I'm, I'm doing a bit of a study and it's kind of a theoretical, funky cultural thing around ants and the history of ants, especially in the United States, and kind of their power in the lives of human beings and their and the ways in which they force us to do things, all kinds of things, whether it's spray poison all over the place or make cool, uh, you know, animated films about them or whatever it might be. And so I'm, I'm turning toward thinking more and more about ways and histories that center the more than humans. So again, we can be super conscious about how vibrant um, those beings are in our lives, even when it seems like humans are absolutely dominant um, over everything. I think that I think maybe uh, trees and insects and and other animals, you know, I think they've still got some power in our lives. And I think it's worth thinking about that. Wow, I have so many questions about ants and the power that they hold over our lives, but I will hold off until uh, until I have you on again to talk about the the, the upcoming ant book at some point. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Dr. Michelle Berry is an assistant professor in the history department at the University of Arizona and is the author of the new book, Cow Talk, Work, Ecology, and Range Cattle Ranchers in the Post-War Mountain West, which just came out earlier this year with the University of Oklahoma Press. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Michelle. Thank you, Steve.